Cuomo says no mo, Congress tries to build a bridge to bipartisanship, and DeSantis fiddles as the infection rates rise. This week on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 371 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. I often receive a bunch of emails asking, basically, how can I call myself nonpartisan if I'm always ragging on Republicans? To me, the answer is simple and obvious. At the risk of sounding like a broken record here, the GOP has regrettably become part and parcel of an ongoing effort to discredit the election results of 2020, continuing to back a man who shows no interest in the truth, let alone democracy. If you don't see what happened on January 6th as an attempted coup, then there's no reason for you to continue to listen. Look no further than the hearings held by the House Select Committee to try and get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th and who was responsible. Listen to the four officers who were beaten by the pro-Trump mob. Listen to one of the two Republicans on the panel, the very conservative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who did not hide her disgust. If those responsible are not held accountable, and if Congress does not act responsibly, this will remain a cancer on our constitutional republic, undermining the peaceful transfer of power at the heart of our democratic system. We will face the threat of more violence in the months to come and another January 6th every four years. I have been a conservative Republican since 1984 when I first voted for Ronald Reagan. I've disagreed sharply on policy and politics with almost every Democratic member of this committee. But in the end, we are one nation under God. And what was the GOP response? Elise Stefanik, the third-ranking Republican in the House, followed the party line and insisted that it wasn't Trump or pro-Trumpers responsible for the insurrection, but Nancy Pelosi. There is a reason that Nancy Pelosi is the most disliked elected official in America. She always puts her own partisan politics over what's best for the American people. She's an authoritarian who has broken the people's house. She is a lame duck speaker and everyone knows it. The reason why Nancy Pelosi is refusing to seat accomplished and well-respected hardworking Republicans like Jim Jordan and Jim Banks is because she doesn't want the American people to know the truth or learn the facts. She doesn't want a fair or bipartisan investigation. She wants a political one. In her down-is-up and up-is-down bizarro world way of telling it, It wasn't the Republicans who refused to allow a fair, nonpartisan committee to look into January 6th. It wasn't Trump who inspired the mob to break into the Capitol. It was Pelosi. I would go on and try to explain what's happened to the Republican Party, but really, what's the point? It's a fruitless exercise. Something happened to the GOP. Donald Trump, sure, but, but there's more to it than that. 
The fact remains that Republicans were willing, more than willing, to throw out the will of the people in 2020 and parrot the words of a would-be demagogue to keep him in power. And they continue to do everything they can to prop him up, his grievances and his fantasies. It breaks my heart. Another heartbreak to report. Neil Conan has died. The longtime host of NPR's Talk of the Nation, the place where the political junkie began as a weekly segment in 2006, Neil had been suffering from brain cancer for a year and a half. He appeared on this broadcast numerous times, including the time last year when he went public with his illness. I'll have more to say about Neil in our next show. But just this thought. Nobody ever said life was fair, but but this feels especially unfair. Rest in peace, my friend. On Tuesday, the inevitable became reality. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced his decision to resign, effective in 14 days. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do, because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Cuomo had been under fire since last week when State Attorney General Letitia James, a fellow Democrat, issued a scathing report that found the governor had sexually harassed 11 women, including current and former government workers. The report came after a five-month investigation that also showed Cuomo and his staff engaging in retaliation against women who filed complaints. Once his resignation is final, he will be succeeded by Kathy Hochul, currently the lieutenant governor, who will become New York's first female governor. Chris Churchill is a reporter with the Albany Times Union and has been covering the story from day one. Chris, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Glad, glad to be here. What a, what a remarkable uh, turn of events. Not only because he, he uh, Andrew Cuomo, insisted from the beginning that he would never resign, but the fact that he did it. Well, I never thought he would do it. I, I thought he would. I said in a column that was published the day he resigned that, that I thought he would fight until the bitter end. It just that that's for better or for worse, and I think largely for worse. That's his character has always been to punch and to fight and to attack. And I just I never saw him essentially giving up. Well, you know, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. From day one, also from day one, he's been insisting that he would not resign. Let me play a little bit of his video response to last week's report. Today, we are living in a superheated, if not toxic, political environment. That shouldn't be lost on anyone. Politics and bias 
are interwoven throughout every aspect of this situation. And for those who are using this moment to score political points or seek publicity or personal gain, I say they actually discredit the legitimate sexual harassment victims that the law was designed to protect. You know, Chris, I know he said over and over again that he wouldn't quit, and but I don't know if he really believed what he was saying, except ultimately he really didn't have much choice, did he? I mean, considering that all the top Democrats in the state told him it was time to go. Yeah, I, I, I do think he had, he had run out of paths that were viable for, for staying in office. I think this may be a little bit of kind of Albany inside baseball, but Melissa DeRosa, his kind of top lieutenant, his top, some people would call her his top henchman, um, or henchwoman. top confidant, henchwoman, yeah, resigned on Sunday night. And um, th- that was eye-opening for a lot of people because I, I think with, with her gone, uh, it just seemed like, a, it seemed like a signal. I mean, that the, even, even the people closest to him were were jumping off the ship, and it really seemed to suggest that the ship was going down. But even with that signal, I don't think anyone expected it to happen quite so quickly. Well, it surely did happen quickly. Matter of fact, the irony here is is that Cuomo initially picked Letitia James, the attorney general, to investigate the matter, but seemingly well, kicking and screaming, kicking and I mean, dragging his feet the whole way. He he clearly did not want it, but was kind of forced into it. But also by picking her, it basically it was an effort maybe to buy himself some time, right? Yeah, it, it clearly was because he what he did was he agreed to the investigation and then asked New Yorkers to wait for the investigation before co- jumping to any conclusions about his innocence or guilt, and then immediately started attacking the investigation and attacking Letitia James and suggesting that she was biased and that she wanted to be governor and that the report was going to be unfair. I think it, describing it as a buying time kind of strategy is, is exactly right. Of course, in addition to all the Democrats in New York State who have been telling him it's time for him to go, there was also the matter of the President of the United States. Back in March, you said that if the investigation confirmed the allegations against Governor Cuomo, then he should resign. So will you now call on him to resign, given the investigator said the 11 women were credible? I stand by that statement. Are you now calling on him to resign? Yes. I, I was actually surprised that wasn't a bigger deal. I, I thought that the president of the United States saying you should resign would, would pretty much would pretty much be the uh, the the blow that did you in, but it didn't really seem to make that much of a difference. He, uh, you know, Biden Biden has been one of his closest allies for a long, long time, and they're you know they're both kind of from the moderate kind of centrist wing of the party, and I. I thought that would be bigger. I really did. I, it just, it almost seemed to not have that big of an effect. Well, maybe it did. I mean, you know, you, you, you thought he wasn't going to quit ultimately, and I thought he had to, given the fact that an impeachment inquiry was coming and the president of the United States wanted him out. Speaking of that impeachment inquiry, with every Republican and many Democrats likely to vote to impeach, really Cuomo didn't seem to have a way out at all. He didn't. No, he didn't. And I, I think that's what the, the Letitia James report really changed. I think as recently as two weeks ago, I mean, this isn't the only scandal swirling around him. It's important to note that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other things. It, it isn't a situation where only, you know, sexual harassment allegations are doing him in. There's the, the nursing home issue, the VIP treatment of COVID testing, you know, where his brother got tested 
ahead of everybody else. And uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot. And he, he may have used state resources to write a book about leadership, right? Yeah, there's that too. I mean, it's, it's actually remarkable when you look at the list of how many different things are swirling around, all of which would have become part of the impeachment proceeding, presumably. So yeah, he was looking. He he was looking at a pretty a pretty bad situation. And you know, by the way, in the video, the the resignation video, he makes it sound as if impeachment is not going to happen with him not not in office. He he make you know he he makes a claim that he's kind of trying to save New York from the um, the ugliness of the whole of the proceedings and that he's doing this to save money and. I, I'm not so sure. I, you know, impeachment could easily go ahead. You, you don't, as, as the president, the former president proved, you can impeachment proceedings can happen whether you're in office or not. True, true. But the, but the, but that was but that was Democrats and a Republican president. Do you think Democrats in the state legislature, in the assembly, in the Senate, or in the assembly at least, have any thirst for an impeachment uh, proceeding? Some of them do. Oh, they still Some do. Some of them huh? definitely do. I mean, the thing that would the all the past few months have made clear is that Cuomo's style of of governing, which is basically bullying everybody, does not leave you with very many friends when things start to go wrong. And um, it has been really clear that has been made really clear. You know, just the it, it's been hard to find anybody who would say anything nice about him. You know, so there. There are a lot of people in the, a lot of Democrats in the Assembly and in the Senate who would, who would love to see him get his comeuppance, even though they're in the same party. I don't know if that would be, I don't know if there's a majority. I don't know how many there are, but there are, they're certainly there for sure. Well, you actually, you make a, make a point that I haven't really even thought about. I mean, he, Cuomo never had this re- great reputation as a human being. You know, he was always accused of being a bully to men and women. And maybe I guess that's perhaps one reason why state Democrats from the beginning were not lining up to defend him. Right. That's exactly right. His, yeah, it, you know, if you weren't on his payroll, there's very little loyalty to him. And the, the, the loyalty was people who were on the payroll and, and people who had something to gain. But when, when people started to see less and less they could gain from, from being associated with the guy, people started falling off. And it, it goes down to character. I mean, it is a character issue. You know, uh, somebody who was... First of all, somebody who didn't have his character flaws would would never have gotten themselves into this mess in the first place. But his character flaws, I think, are part of the reason that so few people are left to his to his defense when uh, when the allegations started mounting. You know, we when uh, we talked about this months ago when you were first on the show, uh, we talked about how Andrew Cuomo was seen as the antidote to Donald Trump, how he would assure Americans uh, with, how, you know, how New York was dealing with the COVID nightmare. Uh, some Democrats were even saying that, forget Biden, forget Bernie, if Cuomo should be running for president. He was a national hero. You know, that seems like a million, feels like a million years ago. He's gone. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is amazing how fast it all turned around. It really is. I mean, when you look at the heights, the national popularity he had, I guess a year ago, a year, right? Yep, I mean, the little, yep. It was, and to see it all collapse so quickly. Of course, for those of us who have been in Albany for a long time, the way that he rose at that moment was also just as remarkable. I mean, he was not—he was not a well-liked governor before COVID came. You know, he was somebody that 
people kind of tolerated. He had a lot of, like, like I just said, he, you know, a lot of people put up with him. He was not loved. He was, his leadership style was about power and manipulating power and bullying people. So when, so when COVID came and he became this kind of national sensation, it was, uh, it was startling to, to Albany, I think. And I, you know, part of me thought, well, gosh, I wonder if this guy who's always been kind of a miserable human being to be, to be blunt about it. I thought, well, maybe he's going to rise to the moment and he's going, this crisis is going to change him somehow. And that he's going to emerge from this, a different character and that he'll, he won't be the same old Andrew Cuomo. And of course, it didn't take long at all before that it became obvious that that wasn't true, you know. And, and if, if anything, all the adulation and all the praise perhaps went to his head and, and made him an even worse version of himself. Tell me, tell me about uh, Kathy Hochul, the uh, soon-to-be governor of New York, the state's first female governor. I don't know that much, to be honest. Don't know that much about her. I mean, she has not. She's been a, a very good lieutenant governor in the sense that she's been willing to do all the things, you know, do the all, go out all the ribbon cuttings and do the things that the governor didn't really want to do. You know, she hasn't she hasn't been a big a big personality in state politics or anything anything of the sort. From from everything that you hear, though, she is temperamentally 180 degrees different than Andrew Cuomo. You know, she's not the vindictive, bully, nasty person that that he so often is. And I think I think that'll be really refreshing. I think New York needs to get away from the kind of New York City hard knuckle type A personality politics that have kind of dominated the state and 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 are probably responsible for so many politicians, so many of the scandals that we've seen over the last, you know, just decade or two decades, from Elliot Spitzer to to Schneiderman to Cuomo, you know, it's just it's just been one after another, and it, it a lot of the scandals seem to be born of arrogance and hubris and and kind of these New York's. <laughs> I don't want to feel like I'm bashing New York City, but a, a certain kind of personality that emerges from the politics there. You do know I was born and raised in the Bronx, don't you? Yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just, against, I'm just saying. It's nothing against people from New York City. It's the it's the politics. It's the politics of New York City that I'm describing more than anything. You know, there's just a, and you know, Kathy Hochul is from Western New York. It's kind of a, it's kind of Midwestern point of uh, view that she that she brings, and kind of a Midwestern personality. I think that'll be a healthy thing. Whether she'll be able to win re-election coming from Western New York is an entirely different matter. Well, even even before we get to uh, re-election, what about renomination? Do you think she has a uh, a clear sailing to the Democratic nomination? Is Letitia James looking at it? Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think she could. I mean, obviously, it depends on how she does. You know, if she's a uh, an effective governor and a good governor, and you know, can k- kind of lasso the, the this unruly legislature, which was one of Cuomo's abilities, right? I mean, the he was able to take drive down the worst impulses of of the state assembly, and I don't. We'll see if Kathy Hochul has, can do that. If she can, though, and if she's effective, I I think she could get the nomination. You do hear people say that nobody from Western New York could ever be the Democratic nominee because you need so many votes from the city and from downstate. But but I'm not sure. I mean, I I think the fact that she's the state's first female governor will will go a long way, and I think I I do think a lot of New Yorkers will view her personality as kind of a breath of fresh air. At least that's, that's my hope. You know, I, 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 you know, I'm not in, I'm not in the business of endorsing anybody or rooting for any politician, but you know, I, I do think that there's something to be said for a different personality type, especially coming after Andrew Cuomo. Right. 
Um, and if and if she does well, I don't know how somebody like Letitia James the the it'll be hard to challenge her. I think. And by, and by the way, there's another guy out there named Andrew Cuomo who might who might just think, you know, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see what the voters think of me. Wait, 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 wait! Expand on that. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't. I mean, if Kathy Hochul does poorly, I can see Andrew Cuomo running again really? if he's not impeached and convicted. I I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility. I don't know how well he would do, but I, you know, he's still got thirty million dollars sitting there in his campaign war chest. I mean, he. I don't know. I'm not sure that he's gone and buried just yet. I, I, there may be a second life. Uh, I don't know if you know, realize this, but that means you'll have to come back on the political junkie. <laughs> well, that would be all right. That'd be all right. Chris Churchill is a political reporter with the Albany Times Union. Both Chris and the newspaper have been on top of the Cuomo story from the outset. Chris, it was great having you on the program. Thank you for having me. Andrew Cuomo's actions, if true, were despicable and warranted his removal from office. His resignation was predictable and inevitable. But also predictable and inevitable were the comments by many Democrats in this Me Too era that amounted to, why is it always Democrats who resign because of sexual harassment, such as Cuomo or Al Franken? Why aren't Republicans held to the same standard, like Matt Gates or Madison Cawthon, or especially Donald Trump, who has been accused of sexual harassment and worse by countless women? Melissa Deckman is a professor of public affairs at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. She's the author of Tea Party Women, Mama Grizzlies, Grassroots Activists, and the Changing Face of the American Right. She's also the co-author of Women and Politics, Path to Power and Political Influence. Melissa, it's wonderful having you back on The Political Junkie. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Ken. Thank you. You know, I come from a school of thought that says sexual harassment is bad, whether it comes from a Democrat or a Republican or a man or a woman or a liberal or conservative. But it seems like, it feels like that whenever a Democrat is accused of such behavior, there's a knee-jerk reaction that says, well, what about the Republicans? What are they, you know, what are they doing? What about what they're doing? What do you make of that all? Uh, I think that's a really good observation. Uh, as you pointed out uh, in your intro, clearly Democrats, I think, take sexual harassment claims far more seriously than do Republicans. Um, and it's really from top down. I think the Me Too movement has had the effect of, at least within one party, um, a, a greater recognition that sexual harassment is a, a serious problem and that we need to hold political leaders accountable for those actions. If you look at Republicans, however, uh, you're not seeing the same message from the leadership at all. In fact, there are, I think, some pretty egregious examples of elected officials in office who have had um, terrible allegations leveled against them but have still remained uh, popular and in office despite those allegations. Well, I mean, you think of, I mean, of course, there's still an investigation, an ongoing investigation into Matt Gates. There have been allegations made against Madison Cawthorn, the, the freshman Republican from North Carolina. And you know that no, you know, no Republican is going to dare call out Donald Trump if they have any hope of remaining in office. It seems like the, sta- the deck is stacked against equal treatment. Well, I think, you know, part of the problem is the issue of salience. So I've done some research um, looking into attitudes about sexual harassment among Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And for Democrats, both women and men, um, sexual uh, harassment is an issue that 
they find to be really disturbing. It bothers them a lot more than it bothers Republicans, frankly. And with Republicans, there is, I think, also this idea that a lot of women's stories are overblown, women are too sensitive, um, that essentially, um, you know, even you kind of saw a little bit of this element with Cuomo's resignation speech that the goalposts have changed, right, that it's almost impossible to just kind of be a man in public life, right, although he, of course, is a Democrat. But generally speaking, Republicans, I think, embrace that kind of idea. And so there's a backlash against the Me Too movement that a lot of Republicans, frankly, um, you know, they've, they've chafed against. And so their response is to say, well, those things really don't matter, or those women aren't, aren't believed, right? And so they tend to overlook that and focus on other elements of, of the leadership that they like, I guess. But it's interesting. I mean, again, this goes to my point of hypocrisy, and I guess it's I could talk myself blue in the face by talking about hypocrisy. But, I mean, there was a speech the other day by Elise Stefanik, and I'm going to play a little bit. Uh, uh, you know, she's the, the Trump fawning congresswoman from upstate New York, the third-ranking Republican in the House, and she, um, she really went after Andrew Cuomo. And make no mistake, every Albany Democrat needs to be held accountable for protecting this criminal. He needs to be arrested. He needs to be impeached. And we need to ensure Republicans save New York. You know, uh, Melissa, and yet nary a word, nary a criticism, a word of criticism about Donald Trump. What a, what a shock that there's hypocrisy in American politics, right? So it, it, it's, it's really just fascinating that um, for many political leaders, especially, I think, in the GOP, um, they call to task the hypocrisy of of what Democrats do that's, that's universally viewed, I think, is bad. I don't think anyone would say sexual harassment is a good thing. But I think that Republicans have always been more quick to sort of call into question or to sort of say that, uh, to kind of call out that bad behavior on the other side. Because, of course, we're in a tribal situation when it comes to American politics these days. Again, not surprising. I think that Elise Stefanik is laying the charge. Not surprising they chose a Republican woman to do this because Republicans want to remind voters that, yes, we care about women. Um, but apparently they don't seem to care when it's their politicians who get charged with these sorts of actions. Well, that leads to this question. And I mean, is it fair to say that one party considers sexual harassment a bad thing more than the other? Well, no, let me ask another way. When Democrats talk about Republican hypocrisy on the issue... Do you think Republicans feel bad about the charge? Do you think they even care? I think that Republican leaders essentially don't view sexual harassment as a salient issue. You know, I think that they feel like, and not all, of course, but I think that many of them feel like um, attacks against Republican male leaders in particular are made up or they're overblown or it's about women trying to get attention. Um, I mean, or what will happen is in the case of Donald Trump, Donald Trump apologizes for saying an egregious thing about grabbing women's private parts, you know, and they move on. Well, look, he apologized, so now we're, we're fine, uh, completely disregarding the other statements by the many women who've gone on record saying that uh, Donald Trump has sexually harassed them and even worse. Um, and so they just say that those women are not believable because they're clearly, it's all political, it's all partisan. Um, there's no evidence that Trump did these sorts of things or it's all hearsay. And so that becomes the defense for them. But it really boils down to the fact that Republicans view the issue dif differently, and this is clear in the national data, uh, than do Democrats. Democrats, especially Democratic women, really care about this issue, whereas Republicans say, yeah, sexual harassment is bad, but they care a lot more about other things. So there w I think there's a tendency to overlook that sort of behavior. 
And so what do you say to Democrats who say, you know, yes, Cuomo needed to resign, but why is it always our side that pays the price? Well, I would look at it another way. I would say that this is actually a beneficial offshoot of the Me Too movement, right? That essentially we now take these claims very seriously. And I think the Democratic Party is being, I think, more consistently ethical with respect to, to taking it, taking this issue seriously, holding leaders accountable. So I think that's a positive thing. I'm not sure how the Republican Party gets to that point, you know, um, but, but I, I kind of view it as really something positive that came out of the Me Too movement, that we're willing to say, look, um, if you do this behavior in our party, we're not going to stand for it. And so we're going to take these women seriously. We're going to hold leaders accountable. Um, so I think it's a positive sort of thing. And I know that many Democrats would feel frustrated that um, certain figures on the political right accused of these things and worse get away with these sorts of things. But at the same time, I think you have to look at sort of the benefit of the Me Too movement. Melissa Deckman is a professor of public affairs at Washington College, where her areas of expertise include religion, gender, and conservative political movements. Melissa, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. But I'm a creep. I'm a There were two special congressional primaries in Ohio last week that sent signals to both Democratic and Republican Party leaders. In the solidly Democrat 11th District, one that is mostly centered in Cleveland but extends to Akron, Chantel Brown, backed by the party establishment, defeated former state senator Nina Turner, a strong Bernie Sanders supporter who has been mostly disdainful of candidates such as Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Both candidates are African-American women. It was for the seat given up by Marsha Fudge, who left Congress to become Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Biden administration. And in the 15th District, in Columbus and its suburbs, the seat was given up by Republican Steve Stivers, who is now President and CEO of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. GOP voters selected Mike Carey, a coal lobbyist in a large field of candidates. The real issue, perhaps the only issue in that contest, was that Donald Trump had endorsed Kerry, and observers were waiting to see if that would make a difference, considering Trump got bad press a week before by endorsing the losing candidate in a Texas runoff. Jacob Rubashkin covered the two primaries from his perch at Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez, the nonpartisan campaign website. Jacob, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And I think we can agree that the Democratic seat in Cleveland will remain Democratic and the Republican seat in Columbus will stay in GOP hands. But the primaries were fascinating and they sent messages to both parties. So let me start with the 11th district in Cleveland, uh, the one that Marsha Fudge had vacated. This one showed that divisions we've been seeing since 2016 you know, Hillary Clinton and the establishment versus Bernie Sanders and the insurgents. Before we go any further, tell me about the two candidates. So the two main candidates, and, and there were uh, over a dozen Democrats running for, for this seat, uh, but the two main candidates were uh, Nina Turner and Chantel Brown. Uh, Nina Turner 
uh, is most well known nationally for being one of the most prominent uh, Bernie Sanders surrogates, both in his 2016 campaign and in his 2020 presidential campaign, and also running his uh, political organization, Our Revolution. Uh, but before that, uh, she was a Ohio state senator representing Cleveland uh, in the state capitol. Before that, she served on the Cleveland City Council. So she has a long career in Cleveland politics before uh, ascending to the national stage through her association with Bernie Sanders. And now Chantel Brown um, is the chairwoman of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party, as well as a Cuyahoga County Councilwoman. Um, and uh, she also has a, a, a decade-long career in Cleveland politics uh, and was a mentee uh, of now Secretary Marsha Fudge, who held this seat uh, until January. I know that Marsha Fudge being in the Biden administration was not about to make an endorsement. Well, first of all, I want to play two of their commercials, uh, starting with Brown. And the Chantel Brown commercial I'm going to play is narrated by Marsha Fudge's mother. I raised Marsha Fudge to be principal, work hard, and care for our community. Marsha now serves in President Biden's cabinet, so she can't endorse in the race for Congress, but I can. Chantel Brown is Marsha's protege. She shares Marsha's values and will continue her legacy in Congress. On August 3rd, we're voting for Chantel Brown. I'm Chantel Brown, and I approve this message. And here's one for Turner that includes Sanders and Cornell West. Why is corporate America so worried about this race? Why are they spending all of that money on little old me? Inquiring minds want to know. They understand that Nina is prepared to take on the powerful special Are you ready to hit the ground and hit the poles and be a force for good to turn this nation around in such a way that we can have a vision for everyday people being empowered? Jacob, the the fact that so many big names were making endorsements and and on both sides showed that this race had major significance, didn't it? That's absolutely correct. The, the national players from all sides of the Democratic Party political spectrum uh, really took this race to be uh, the latest iteration of intra-party conflict that has been going on uh, really since uh, the 2016 Democratic primary uh, in the presidential primary. Um, and so to see uh, kind of a whole host of big names, I think it was always expected that uh, Nina Turner would bring in the star power uh, simply because of that really strong relationship that she has uh, with Senator Bernie Sanders and and that wing of the party. Um, But to me, the more interesting thing that that we saw play out kind of over the 10 months, uh, give or take eight eight months that this campaign uh, really was going, uh, was the, the level of involvement on the side of Chantel Brown that she and her allies were able to muster to a degree that eventually uh, took her from being a relatively unknown political figure compared to the the very well-known Nita Turner to the next congresswoman from Ohio's 11th district. Well, you're right. Exactly. I mean, not only was it Hillary Clinton who endorsed Chantel Brown, uh, but so did South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn. Of course, his famous endorsement of Joe Biden uh, before the South Carolina primary helped you know, launch Biden on the way to the nomination. But you had Hillary Clinton, you had Jim Clyburn, you had the Congressional Black Caucus. 
And basically, the fact that you had Hillary Clinton on one side, you had Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the other side, it was more than just endorsements. It was a sense that maybe paying back for what happened, what, what, you know, what Turner has been saying about the Democratic establishment ever since. That's exactly right. And I do think that it's worth noting the distinction, perhaps, between some of the more policy-oriented disputes uh, that that are uh, running through the Democratic Party at the moment, things like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. Um, I, I think that that is its own set of issues. And while that played uh, a little bit in this race, uh, what what the the contours of of the conflict that that we saw here had a lot more to do with Nina Turner specifically as a political figure. And the things that she said and the actions that she undertook um, in in both the 2016 campaign, where she refused to endorse Hillary Clinton, still maintains that she's not going to tell anyone uh, who she voted for in the the general election. Um, Wasn't she playing footsie with uh, with, uh, Jill Stein? Yeah, she she had made some expressions of support for Stein uh, through the course of the 2016 campaign, obviously, when when everyone thought that Hillary was going to win. But, uh, you know, does not say who she voted for, only says that she she didn't you know, she was not a supporter of, of Hillary Clinton. And then in 2020, right, had that uh, famous comment where she, you know, compared uh, voting to Joe Biden to uh, with a pretty obscene analogy that I'm not going to repeat here. And so I think that there was a a tremendous amount of personal uh, frustration and and even distaste uh, with Nina Turner, specifically from from the political establishment, from people like Hillary Clinton and Jim Clyburn and a lot of these people who we we saw get involved in this race. And that had less to do with the fact that Nina Turner uh, supported Medicare for all um, than the fact that she didn't support Joe Biden and she didn't support Hillary Clinton uh, when those standard bearers were going up against Donald Trump. And that, more than anything else, seems to be uh, where where this election turned in a lot of voters' minds. Well, let me let, you're absolutely right. Let me play one more uh, Chantel Brown commercial, uh, basically uh, talking about the fact that Nina Turner wasn't there when the party needed her. I'm Chantel Brown. Like many of you, I did everything to make sure Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. And thank God we defeated him. I'm running for Congress to work with President Biden and deliver for Northeast Ohio with better jobs, affordable health care, and stopping gun violence. Some just want to attack Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Frankly, I'm sick of it. I approve this message because we got rid of Trump. Now let's get things done. Jacob, I found it interesting that the so-called Democratic establishment, it went all out to stop Nina Turner. That was pretty, uh, I mean, there was, no, there was no question involved here. Frankly, I am a little surprised at the degree to which the, the party establishment intervened here as well. I think if you were to go back six months ago, uh, when, when Nina Turner was the prohibitive favorite, I think a lot of people were resigned to uh, her being the next congresswoman from this district. And uh, the the level of involvement, both in terms of the star power and the financial muscle uh, that came in behind Chantel Brown in those intervening months was quite surprising. I think that uh, one of the perhaps underrated aspects of all this is just how narrow the Democratic majority is 
in the House of Representatives at this moment. Nancy Pelosi can only lose, uh, depending on the day, you know, three to four votes uh, off of anything that she wants to pass the House. And so the, the prospect of having someone like Nina Turner, who has shown a willingness to uh, go against the party leadership, complicating those kinds of votes, where Chantel Brown was presenting herself as, you know, someone who would always be voting pretty much with the, the Biden agenda and, and the leadership agenda. Um, I think when, when you're sitting there counting votes, uh, it helps kind of understand why the party establishment was so forceful in its uh, involvement here. I know this is only one primary, uh, but have you seen any indication that this division, this Hillary versus Bernie, establishment versus insurgents. Do you, do you have any indication, have you seen any indication that this division will continue into the 2022 midterms? It's been going on for the last five years. Uh, you know, I think that there, there's no reason to expect that the left wing of the party is going to give up trying to affect the change that they think is uh, going to be uh, necessary to be successful in the future. And so, uh, yes, the, this loss, is certainly dispiriting for the left, especially given uh, the tremendous advantages that Nina Turner brought to this race to begin with. So I don't think there's going to be any slowing down. I think we've already started to see, um, I know Jessica Cisneros, who was a a progressive-backed challenger to Henry Cuellar in Texas, uh, announced the day after uh, Nina Turner's loss that she would challenge Cuellar again. Uh, I think that'll be a high-profile race in 2022. In the the Democratic primary. In the Democratic primary, exactly. I think that we will continue to see Democrats on the left wing of the party um, make their case uh, in in both open elections like this one and and in primary challenges against incumbents. I I don't think that's going to slow down uh, despite uh, this loss or some of the other losses that that segment of the party has taken in recent years. Okay, let me go to the Republicans now. Um, When Donald Trump endorsed uh, Texas candidate Susan Wright, who lost last week in a bid to succeed her husband, Congressman Ron Wright, who had died of COVID, uh, many people started questioning the power of a Trump endorsement. Uh, So then he comes into Ohio, endorses Mike Carey, and everyone is waiting to see if it would help or hurt. In this case, it certainly seemed to help. I stood with President Trump when he took on the political establishment, and he said, no more. Drain the swamp. President Trump deserves credit for empowering so many. He gave a voice to everyday Ohioans who felt left behind. He voiced the frustration of our neighbors, our friends, and our families. So to watch Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, AOC, try to force a radical agenda on the America we love, look, I won't stand for it. If you want a fighter, a Trump conservative, whose values were defined by the greatness of the Buckeye State, then I'd be honored to have your support. I'm Mike Carey, and that's why I'm running for Congress. That's exactly right. Uh, Mike Carey, longtime coal lobbyist, uh, had run for office several times before. He went from being a a relative unknown uh, to being the uh, front runner in this race and ultimately being the victor. And I think that is, if not entirely because of of the president's endorsement, then uh, it is certainly mostly because of of the former president's endorsement of him. Well, I was going to say, I mean, Steve Stivers, the congressman who gave up the seat, 
uh, had endorsed another candidate. Uh, Rand Paul came in and, and endorsed still another candidate. And I think there were like 11 Republicans in all on the ballot. But but Kerry won big. Can you attribute it to anything other than Trump? And if, if Trump got bad press for his defeat in Texas, does Trump get good press for what happened in Ohio? I think it is fair to say that Trump had an outsized impact on this election. Looking at the at the Republican primary in Ohio 15, I think uh, the signs are a little bit better for him, both in terms of the number of people that showed up um, and the fact that Mike Carey did win and he won by a fairly substantial margin against a field that included a, a fair number of established politicians uh, and, and people who have thought behind them. There were a lot of legit candidates in this race. Um, it could have been a wide open kind of melee, uh, but armed with that Trump endorsement, Mike Kerry did exactly what he had to do. He won all but one county in the district. And I think it, it was a pretty dominant performance. And, and yes, I think former President Trump is taking a, a victory lap. And I think that within the, the, the kind of question of you know, does the Trump endorsement matter? Is it the most important endorsement in, in Republican politics today? Uh, the answer is yes. Is it fair to say that Republicans running for the House and Senate across the country next year would rather have a Trump endorsement than not have it? Oh, absolutely. I think that there there is little reason in a Republican primary why you wouldn't want to have the Trump endorsement. I, I think that it uh, you can win without it. I think we've seen that in the past. Candidates have have been able to do that. Uh, But faced with the choice of a Trump endorsement or having one of your opponents endorsed by Trump, certainly, I think the the straightforward um, and and pretty much in every situation, obvious answer is you would prefer to be endorsed by the former president. Jacob Rubashkin is a political reporter with the nonpartisan website Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez. Jacob, it was great having you on the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, or cash, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. Our next show will celebrate the career of and my friendship with Neil Conan. I'll see you then.